0: welcome to dunzo this is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends both real and fake and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear i'm your host troy mckeedy Hello, mmo Mowers. It's me, Troy McEady, and welcome to 100 and... What? (laughs) Oh, what a good way to start. Seven seconds in. Welcome to episode 149 of Dunzo, a.k.a. the Whitney Houston Podcast. I am so happy that you're here today. Um, Switching things up this week, for the past couple weeks, I've been releasing the bonus episode right before the full episode, whatever, um, but this week, I'm, I'm like, sort of back on schedule. I was kind of backwards and a little bit behind. Um, but we're back on schedule. So this is... You should be listening to this on Friday, Friday morning. And uh, Being Bobby Brown is going to come out tomorrow. It's a really... It's... Honestly, it's the best Being Bobby Brown episode so far. I'm going to be honest with you. It's the best one so far. I'm so excited. The guest is so great and, like, so, uh, like... It's just so fun when you record with somebody who you know loves something as much as you do and has the same sort of like, you know, 20 years of pent-up feelings about it that you have. So it's going to be really good. You guys will love it. It's long. It's good. This week, we are finally delving into some of the stuff that I've kind of been teasing for the past couple of weeks. Um, We've been talking a lot about the Diane Sawyer interview. We've been talking a lot about Wendy Williams. We are approaching some milestones today. This is a milestone episode. We've got some milestone events to talk about. I basically transcribed the entire Diane Sawyer interview because I'm a fucking lifeless psychopath. And quarantine does nothing but feed all of my like neuroses and it like and all of that goes into this podcast. So it's great for you, but terrible for me. We've got a lot of show to get through today, so I'm just going to get right into it. This week's episode may be, let me warn you and saying that this week's episode may be a little bit shorter than I'm used to. And I know that I always say that, and then I end up rambling for seven fucking hours to myself in a sweaty room. Like, I know that. But hear me out. In my notes, I really, truly did transcribe that Diane Sawyer interview, so it spaced out my notes in a way that made it sort of look like what it normally looks like, but they're... (sighs) It doesn't really matter. It actually doesn't. It fully doesn't fucking matter. And you're probably fast forwarding this anyway. And I, I I hate that you're doing that to me, but I understand it. I'm just saying this could be like 40 minutes long this week. You know what I mean? And if that is the case, then I'm sorry. Um, We are continuing our exploration into what I suppose you could consider to be, I guess, like the most destructive years of Whitney's life. Um, And I think even that would be debatable. You know, I'm sure there are people who love Whitney that have sort of differing opinions on when shit really like officially hit the fan. But what isn't up for debate is the nosedive her public image took during these specific years. I actually wanted to tie a lot of this stuff up last week um, so that we could, you know, move on or whatever. (laughs) But there was just so much to cover that I couldn't quickly do it. I actually had to space it out. Um, but yeah, today, like I said, we're going to be talking about Diane Sawyer, and we're finally going to be talking about Wendy Williams and her lawsuit with her father. This is a really fascinating time career-wise for Whitney Houston, because in 20 years, we're finally seeing, you know, one of the first legitimate, like, slopes in album sales for her, and a slope for Whitney Houston is obviously, a, like, an unimaginable high for any other artist, But she did release an album that wasn't necessarily well-received, and it was one of her first truly not well-received albums. What? What a dumb sentence. Whatever. So we talked about the Michael Jackson 30th anniversary concert thing that solidified her as truly one of the biggest tabloid fixtures of the decade, if she wasn't already. And the circulation of those photos and the rumors surrounding you know, her weight and all the things, it was wildfire to the point that it really became like sort of a regular occurrence for her to have to deny reports that she was dead, which is insane. Like, you know that as a celebrity, you've reached a really low point when people are reporting your death because they just assume you aren't alive. Like, that's really bad. Especially after the network admitted that they digitally enhanced her body, Like, when people found out that that was a thing, that that was, like, even an option, a thing that you could do, people ran with that. I mean, it, like, rolls off my tongue because I remember hearing it so often back then. You know, they digitally added weight to Whitney Houston's body. She's so skinny that they digitally plumped her up for the cameras. Her publicist actually had to release a statement to ABC News after that concert because they reported her death to the world. She said, I've just spoken to Whitney. She is perfectly fine and does not understand why, with everything going on in the world right now, they have to find new rumors to dig up. She is home in New Jersey with her family. According to the publicist, people were calling the singer at home and sobbing after apparently having heard reports of her death over the radio. According to the rumors, uh, Houston had died of a drug overdose. Whitney has been under stress due to family matters And when she is under stress, she doesn't eat. That is the explanation for her weight. And I want to start this week by discussing the infamous lawsuit with her dad. I mentioned it earlier in the series. I think like maybe episode one or at this point, honestly, I don't fucking know. But I mentioned it at some point. And, you know, we talked about how one of the guys that she was on tour with, I think it was her tour manager or somebody how they had mentioned in one of the documentaries that when Whitney Houston died, if you, if there was like a checklist that you could go down of all the things that contributed to her downfall, her being booed at the Soul Train Awards was one of the things that he mentioned. I think this would be at the very, 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 I mean, maybe not the number one thing, but it would be like two or three. Her dad very publicly suing her. We've talked at nauseam at this point about how Oh God, how much of an ATM Whitney Houston had become to her friends and to family and friends of friends and friends of family and family of spouses and cousins of exes of former managers who knew a guy that worked the door and blah, blah, blah. She was paying everybody's bills. Everybody was rich. Everybody was high off their asses for doing absolutely nothing. And her musical director said... And I quote, I don't know many accountants that have several Ferraris and yachts, but only have one client. And the thing is, I don't think many people understand how much of a corporation a successful music artist becomes. Like if you think about the number of people employed by an artist that they don't, they they probably themselves don't even realize they're paying it becomes easier and easier and easier to steal from them the more and more successful they become. You have like hair and makeup people, you have wardrobe, you have assistants, you have producers, musical directors, tour managers, um, the guy who like, you know, fixes you fucking food in the morning or does your coffee or make sure that you have like a vase of fucking hydrangeas next to you or whatever, your driver. I mean, all of those people, security guards, choreographers, backup singers, backup dancers, publicists, like the list goes on and on, lighting people. Like, there are literally thousands of people that are employed by a successful artist. And there's an entire ecosystem that exists solely around you, which is insane when you think about it, like having to manage that and knowing that A lot of these people won't eat if you don't go out there and fucking perform for the 30th thousandth time. What? It's been alleged and proven to be fact that John Houston and an unnamed accomplice were stealing money from Whitney from the get-go. And, you know, they made it a point in the Hulu documentary to um, show a picture of her dad with her publicists and... This guy was also John's business partner and they're like wearing furs and fucking, you know, gnawing on cigars. And, you know, it it felt like the documentary was trying to say, like, this is the guy, but we are not allowed to say his name. So Whitney eventually found out about how much money was stolen and it obviously broke her. And we've now established that Whitney did have this very close relationship to her dad. But one that I mean, look, it's... (sighs) We've seen it time and time again. It's one of those, like, Hollywood parent relationships similar to You Know Who, where she's the last one to realize that the people she's supposed to be able to trust don't actually have her best interests. She's described by literally everybody who knows her as a former daddy's girl, and he took advantage of that vulnerability and the safety that she felt with him because she didn't get to feel it with many people he took advantage of it and the really sad thing is that you know they were never really the same like she was never the same the relationship was never the same he died very shortly after and he i think when he died he really did like take a piece of her i don't think whitney houston was ever the same after the shit with her dad now if you recall from last week we talked about this crazy record deal that Whitney Houston signed in late 1999 and it was the biggest recording contract in history at 100 million dollars and Whitney's father and his shady business partner were under the impression that I guess I guess they thought the only reason Whitney was able to sign the deal or get the deal or whatever was because of them mind you Her father is, like, sick as fuck at this point. So any in-person interview you see of him, like, you know, he's really, like, laying it on thick, literally. He's laying in a hospital bed and just, like, giving you a cough, cough performance. And he is—he's literally sick. The man died the following year. But he was also using his sickness as a way to, like, gain sympathy from the public. He wanted people to believe that Whitney had deserted him and abandoned him And this is a man his entire life who was, I mean, worn furs. And like I said earlier, was like, he's that guy that walks around with like a cigar in his mouth and a fur because he is a black man from fucking Newark. And he comes from a generation where that's how you show people that you have wealth. You drape a fur on your shoulders and bite a cigar or whatever. (laughs) And in reality, he had been wheeling and dealing his daughter since she was a teenager, basically. And, uh, yeah, it's just really, it's really gross and really fucking sad. And John Huston just has one of those faces. You look at him, especially younger pictures of him, like during the seventies, the eighties, he literally looks maniacal. Like he looks like fucking Lucius from the show Empire. Like that's his whole gig. He looks like a man who can spot how to steal money from every single person he interacts with. It was announced in October of 2002 that John and his business partner were suing Whitney for $100 million. He told the media that Whitney owed him management fees for helping sort out her legal troubles when she was arrested in Hawaii for um, marijuana and for negotiating her contract with Arista. Uh, John Skinner, president of John's... Well, that's confusing. So John Skinner is the business partner. John Houston is Whitney's dad. John Skinner was the president of John's management company. And he said, uh, we weren't her managers per se, at least not in the name, but we were in effect. She had no management at the time, and we masterminded the whole situation. All of the parties involved, we selected, and we did whatever it took to get her uh, financial solvent. It took her five years to run through her money and it took us five weeks to get all of it back and then some, but we didn't do it for free. In fact, they did it for an agreed-upon 20% of the singer's earnings, Skinner said. This is an unusually high figure for a star of Houston's stature, who would normally pay a manager around 10%, Skinner acknowledged. For anyone else, it could have been higher, he said, and she was in a crisis. We could have named our price, but she's his daughter. She She would have had no publicists, no accountants, no lawyers, no house. She would have been bankrupt. Now, fun fact about John Skinner, the man in question, he was actually um, a convicted drug dealer and admitted to supplying Whitney with drugs for years. He was her basically her live-in drug dealer. John Houston's spokesperson, uh, Sonia Johnson, said in the same interview. Um, I'm stating for the record that I am 100 percent behind the lawsuit against my daughter, Whitney, and am ashamed at my daughter's staff because they went to weasel out of paying my company. I will not rest until this is over, and I plan to see it through until the end, Johnson added. Uh, John Houston feels terrible about having to go this route. Whitney should have known better than this. Everybody feels badly about it. And her dad chose to make this case as literally as public as he possibly could from his uh, hospital bed. Like he even made an appearance on, do you remember the show Celebrity Justice? It was like one of those like early 2000s, like celebrity, it wasn't a, I don't believe it was a court show. If I recall, it was like a show that's like sort of went into celebrity cases like explored celebrity lawsuits and like why they were happening and shit like that. Um, He made an appearance on Celebrity Justice and in his interview, he said, you get your act together, honey, and you pay me the money that you owe me. If you do that, then you haven't got a lawsuit. He threatened his daughter on a celebrity court show while he's suing her from a hospital bed. The whole thing is just fucking insane. Whitney's father passed away on February 2nd of 2003 after a several year-long battle with diabetes and heart disease at 82 and according to her stylist um, she avoided the funeral because she didn't want you know swarms of people she didn't want the spectacle and you know I mean I would imagine it had to be super weird and like really really difficult considering the entire world, not even the, just the world, but everybody in that church, everybody who would go to that church to, like, mourn the loss of her father would know that they weren't speaking, that they hadn't spoken. And that they were never going to speak again because he was no longer here. And that the reason was because he was fucking suing her for a hundred million dollars. And this lawsuit was still pending when he died. So she literally would have shown up to the funeral of a dead man who was currently suing her. It's just messy and gross and sad and it's like it's just insane. I it's insane. The lawsuit ended up being thrown out in April of 2004, and in the documentary they talked about how reclusive and closed off Whitney became after the death of her father. She sort of locked herself away in her New Jersey mansion. She got high all day and she chain smoked all day i i dare you to find a home video footage clip whatever of whitney Houston during this time without a cigarette in her mouth and this is coming from somebody who is literally staring at a cigarette right now and and like i'm i am so excited to go outside and smoke it like i can't even put it into words but like Here's the thing. When it comes to me and the way that I smoke cigarettes, I'm like a reward myself smoker. Like, I like to smoke. I love smoking when I'm drunk, of course, because I'm a human person. I'm a human person who went to college and high school in the early 2000s. So, like, obviously, I like to smoke a cigarette when I'm drinking. But, like, you know, after doing something like this and, like, doing all of these notes and, like, recording this for an hour and then editing it and doing all the shit, yeah, I like to reward myself by going outside to have a cigarette and a glass of wine. It's like. It's a, you know, whatever. Why, why, are, why is this happening? Um, but like Whitney Houston is somebody who, I mean, was a, ch- like chain smoker doesn't even describe it. Like the way that this woman sucked on a cigarette, Whitney Houston makes every cigarette look like a lady fair cigarette. <laughs> and if you understand that reference, I'm like not going to explain the reference, but if you understand it, like you get it, they are quick burning. They go from fucking tip to bottom Within one hit, it's insane. This guy named Joey, I want to say his last name was pronounced (laughs) Arbagay. Arbaggy? He worked in A&R for Arista Records from 2000 to 2004, which means he worked really, really closely with Whitney Houston on her projects during that time. And um, in the movie, he said, I actually wrote down a quote from him. He said, I always felt compassion and emptiness for her. Deep down, she was a sad little girl in pain, but at the same time, she was so fun. She was so full of laughter, and her smile made you feel warm all the time. She was the first person that I've ever worked with in a and and we would record music whenever or wherever they wanted to go. Sometimes we would go to Miami because the weather would be better, and we would be there for three months and record less than two songs. She said to me once, baby, I don't know. She said, baby, I don't think I've slept more than 45 minutes this summer. She would go behind the hotel door and not open it for 10 days to two weeks. She would lock herself in her fucking hotel for two weeks straight and not not leave once. He said when she opened it, I could tell that she had lost weight or looked really unhealthy. And I would open it up and say, Nippy, come get some soup. He also confirmed that this went on for several years and that the label had spent at the very least $5 million on just whatever she wanted to do during that time that they were working together. And this was all money that was supposed to be going to the production of her album. And they were using it for dinners and hotels and private planes and, uh, you know, studios that they would book and then never even step foot in. And he also addressed something that I've been wondering, and that's really been bugging me since we started this whole thing It's something that I've always been really confused by and just really, I guess, sort of curious about, especially now. And I feel like most of you listening are also confused by this. Why the fuck did Arista invest a record-breaking amount of money into a woman who was very clearly trying to communicate to everyone around her that she wasn't interested in doing any of this shit anymore? Like, let's forget about the fact that, you know, her well-being isn't, you know, isn't on anybody's mind. I mean, that sort of goes without saying at this point. We've all established that she's surrounded by some of the most truly horrendous people. But if we look at this from a purely, like, business standpoint, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, this is Whitney Houston at the peak of being a drug addict. And the interviewer in the doc, um, he asked this guy, in other words, you know, why this happened? Like, why did they do it? And he basically says, you know, people wanted the music, people wanted to hear her sing. And there was still a really high demand for a Whitney Houston album, which I understand. But it still just doesn't make any sense to me. And L.A. Reed actually has the fucking nerve to say in this documentary that he, in quotes, in quotes, this is after... By the way, Whitney Houston has done, like, Michael Jackson and shit. He didn't know that she had a drug problem. I'm just going to allow you to very slowly pull over the car and take out your pack of cigarettes because you can't take it anymore either. What? He didn't know that Whitney Houston was addicted to drugs. He didn't know. It's like, oh, okay. You didn't know when she was 75 pounds... And completely manic and dripping in sweat everywhere she went. She had a drug problem. Which, by the way, just proves that Ellie Reed cannot be fucking trusted. This man is a, is a snake and a liar and a fucking sexual predator. And I don't even, I don't know why he's still working. Now, after the Michael Jackson concert, the cat was out of the bag, so to speak. And the entire world at this point now knew that, um, you know, Whitney Houston not only had a drug problem, but they were aware of the magnitude of this drug problem, that Whitney Houston was, in fact, a, quote, crackhead, end quote. So the Whitney Houston machine went into full damage control, and they all convinced themselves that doing a sit-down interview would be the answer to all of their problems. (laughs) In walks Diane Sawyer in her, like, cream, like, Ralph Lauren jacket and sweater set. Now, before we get into any of this, I do want to start by pointing out how specific all of this is to the time. Like the need to sit down with Diane Sawyer as a celebrity and explain yourself to the public, you know, because you don't have the option of sitting in your fucking living room and going live on Instagram. You are at the mercy of ABC and how they choose to frame you basically pleading for your, like pleading your case to the public. And like, I don't know if you just think about how different celebrity culture is solely based on the fact that we don't have interviews like this anymore. Is so crazy. I think about this all the time. We don't have celebrity interviews anymore. They don't really exist. I mean, they do, but they don't. You know what I mean? The celebrity interview, like, the definitive celebrity interview of the year. The one—you you get what I mean. If you're of a particular age, you get what I mean. Like, truly, gone are the days of Paris Hilton sitting down with Larry King. I think I've said this before, and, like, you know, after being released from jail and showing him her princess doodles from her jail cell, you know, or interviews like Michael Jackson sitting down with Oprah at Neverland and— explaining his skin, um, you know, interviews like Britney Spears, sitting down with Matt Lauer while she's seven months pregnant, being, you know, chased around and a- literally begging the public to like, leave her alone. Um, They don't exist anymore. Even something as simple as Barbara Walters, 10 most fascinating people. Like even just that not existing anymore is such a massive game changer to the celebrity machine. Like, everything is just so different. And I don't, I don't know, I don't count things like Ellen or, you know, Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon. Those are not real celebrity interviews. Those are not, they don't, They. it's almost as if they don't matter. Those, those people go on those shows to be, to be fake and play fucking whipped cream pie to the face or whatever, you know? This was a time when we as a country would sit in front of the TV at like 8 or 9 p.m. to watch something like this together, all together. And there was no like live tweeting it or any of that. Like we just watched all, we, all, no matter who you were. An interview like this where Whitney Houston, a megastar was going to sit down and explain all of the stuff for an hour. Everybody in the country sat down together and watched. It was like watching an award show. And like I said, this is pre-social media, so there's no, you know, now it's like we have a full day of, like, memes after something like this, right? Like, a full day of memes, a full day of, like, every kind of joke you could possibly imagine being exhausted, just all of the jokes, until, you know, we do kind of have, like, a collective exhaustion of just being sort of done with it. We've all joked about it as much as we can. All day long, millions of people joking about the same thing all day. And then we move on. During this time, it was a long, slow burn. Like a slow burn. And it would last years. Like her PTSD from this interview lasted years in a way that it just wouldn't now. Like this interview would have been a big deal for at the very most now, a couple weeks, maybe, maybe even if that, this was something that lasted for like the better part of a decade. And as a celebrity, your interactions with the public were so sparse in comparison to now, you know, there was no way to like quickly fix something like this other than like go on another talk show and like do it again and just pray for the best or do a magazine or something and be completely misquoted, which in some cases can be worse. So as previously mentioned, I did uh, transcribe this interview for you, the people. So, um, yeah, here we go. So Diane Sawyer walks in with her fucking, like I said, her creamed two-piece, like Ralph Lorenz suit. And she said, you know, <laughs> as we sit here and talk, everybody watching is going to be staring at you physically. And they're going to be saying, how thin is she? How many bones can we see? is she sick? How sick is she? And Whitney said, I'm not sick, Diane. I'm not sick. Let's get that straight. I'm not sick. Okay. I've always been a thin girl. I'm not going to be fat ever. Let's get that straight. Whitney is never going to be fat ever. Okay. Diane then shows Whitney a photo of herself from the Michael Jackson show. And Whitney responds. <laughs> Whitney's response was that was a bad shot. Yeah, that was a bad shot. Then Diane goes on to ask if she's anorexic, if she's bulimic, if it's drugs. She points to her bones on her chest. Whitney goes, yeah, my bones. Yeah, I'm 5'7". I'm thin. I can understand what you mean. And she goes, but that's not thin. And Whitney goes, (laughs) one of the highlights. She goes, no. What is it, Diane? Tell me. Do you know? Now, I'll grant you, I partied. But there were times when I know I was going through a lot of emotional stress and my eating habits were awful. And then Diane Sawyer goes, Whitney dying, crack rehab fails. And Whitney says, everybody say it with me. Let's all say it together since we all know it by heart. If you were of a particular age, you probably know this by heart. (laughs) First of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. You don't do that. Crack is whack. They then go on to talk about all of her cancellations and her growing reputation for being difficult and unprofessional. She reminds Whitney that she didn't show up to Clive Davis's tribute, which was like a huge deal at the time. And uh, to which Whitney says it was between she and him and that they talked about it. And she said that she cried and she cried and she wished that she could have gone, blah, blah, blah. Diane also asks her about the Oscars. She goes, okay, the Oscars. <laughs> and Whitney goes, okay. I was fired from the gig. I didn't mind. I didn't really want to do it anyway. <laughs> she goes, but I'm I'm past that. I'm past all of that. It's over now. Diane goes, were you fired? <laughs> and Whitney goes, she goes, because I was not getting along with that guy, the guy that was doing the whole thing, who I've known since I was a kid, a.k.a. Burt Bacharach I love that she's like that guy like that's purely shade Burt Bacharach you mean um they then go on to talk about her relationship with Bobby um we did it you just never pictured Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston together but who did love is where you find it it's where you find it and I found it with him and I, he found it with me he was sexy smooth and gentleman and a nice guy contrary to popular belief a very nice guy he treated me like a lady We were opposites in so many ways, but uh, we're so much alike. And Diane said, how are you alike? (laughs) He's family-oriented, as am I, and they didn't give us six minutes to last, and we've gone ten years. And then Diane said, on the way down here, a flight attendant came up to me and said, I'd just like to ask her why she stays with him. Why doesn't she leave him? And Whitney said, Well, I'd like to ask her about why she stays with her man. I'd like to know how her utopia is. Then we can talk. Then we get into the juicy stuff. Diane says, has he ever hit you? And she goes, no, he's never hit me. No, I've hit him in anger. And Diane says, come back to the feeling that people have, that your husband is controlling and that you can't get away from him, that you can't get away from it any more than an abused housewife can't get away from it because you can't see it. It's a magnet that pulls you back. And Whitney says, the magnet that they're talking about is my love and my protection for him. I cannot say that there wasn't a time where, yeah, it was like that, you know, but I was new at it four or five years ago. You know, I was that wife that wanted to be there to make sure, you know, everything was cool and that, you know, no other woman, no other women were around and blah, 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 blah. This is my first love. You have to remember. I'd never really been in love with anybody like I was in love with Bobby. So I went through all of the changes that any girl would go through, you know, i did i did but i'm older and i'm wiser now i'm wiser about it and he can go away and i'm fine i can go away and he's fine it's not the Gully tactic anymore diane then goes on to tell her that they do have a Gully relationship and starts to interview bobby and she starts by asking bobby if he hits whitney he said i have four sisters four aunts a mother you know two daughters I would never raise my hands in any kind of way to them. I love, I love the beauty of a woman and this is mine. So no, no, no. Now I admit I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a wild guy, you know, sometimes, you know, I like all of the attention, you know? And Diane says, does it bother you when she gets more attention than you? And he said, no, it doesn't bother me at all. (laughs) Okay. She said, yeah, but you're in the same business. So how do you not compare? He goes, no, but she's a female and no one can touch me as an entertainer. So no, (laughs) this man, this fucking delusional psychopath has just on national television compared his pot belly ass to Whitney Houston. Now I understand girls, you know, girls of a particular age, you guys were all sweating and fainting and shit to Bobby Brown throwing his dick around on stage. I get it. But this man, this fucking slack jawed yokel has compared himself to Whitney Houston and said, no, I'm not, I'm not threatened by her because A, because she's a woman and B, because I'm one of the greatest entertainers of all time. Like, I'm sorry, Bobby, I have praised your accolades on this podcast. I have sang your praises. I have done everything I can to shine you in a light. That is fair and equal, but sir, like sir. You guys, let's go ahead and take a quick break so I can pay my bills or whatever. You guys know the deal. This week's episode is sponsored by none other than best fiends. We are smack dab in the middle of summer and there is literally no activity. I love more than turning on my air conditioner as high as it will go. Laying on my couch, wrapped in a terry cloth robe, turning on a little bit of music, and getting completely lost in this game. It's a huge stress reliever for me right now, especially after working with the general public all day. And it's also just fun and colorful and bright. And you guys know that it's in my nature to be drawn to shiny things. My favorite character in the game is one called Rue, who's just like generally super adorable. And she's described as a wasp without wings and ends up turning into, she kind of looks like Pat Benatar, if I'm being honest. If you're wondering, and I know that you are, I'm at level 930, which means I am officially more accomplished in this game than I am in my actual life. But that is not what we're here to talk about today. The greatest thing about this game is that it does not require an internet connection so you can play wherever you want. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. No one can touch me as an entertainer. No one, you know? So no, I don't worry about that. I know that no one can touch her as Whitney Houston. Her voice, no one can outsing her. You know, no one can outperform her. No one. So she has her part and I have my part. And, you know, that's what makes it easy. Bobby admits to Diane that he is bipolar and that he smokes weed to help him come down and relax. Diane also shows them a tabloid claiming that they have a $730,000 drug habit. And, um,. This is one of the most iconic lines of the entire interview. Whitney (laughs) Whitney says, come on, 730, I wish. No, I wish that I was making that money off of me. You could share it with me. No, no, no way. I want to see the receipts from the drug dealer that I bought $730,000 worth of drugs from. I want to see the receipts. Diane goes, is it alcohol? Is it marijuana? Is it cocaine? Is it pills? And Whitney goes, it has been at times. And Diane goes, all. And Whitney says, at times. And you can tell that she's sort of like, she's in like a porcupine like response to this. Because it's like, obviously, she wants to defend herself. Obviously, she feels threatened. Obviously, she feels uncomfortable. Obviously, she feels attacked. Obviously, she was on the defense. She has the entire world coming for her at this particular moment in time everybody is making fun of her and she has no idea how bad it's about to get like she's being talked about but like this interview is about to send her into a completely different stratosphere and she doesn't even know so you can see there's like moments where she wants to be vulnerable she wants to be honest she wants to be truthful but diane sawyer is not here out of the kindness of her fucking heart she's here to exploit whitney houston so she's you know sort of trepidatious and then she has moments of like letting her guard down and being honest about the things that make her upset and the things from her past that have affected her and whatever and i just have to say diane sawyer is so good at pretending to be concerned she's so good at pretending to be um like a truth teller in the sense of like i'm not gonna let you get out of this interview without like you know, bettering yourself or being vulnerable. Like she, she tries to come off as like a version of like a Yanla, you know what I mean? But she's a complete cunt. Like it took me so many years to realize Diane Sawyer is a complete fucking evil bitch. Oh my God. She's so mean. She also asks Whitney if she thinks of herself as an addict. And Whitney said an addict of making love, which no lies, no lies have been detected as an avid watcher of being Bobby Brown. I can tell you firsthand that the lie detector test has stated that there are no lies being told on this good day. Whitney Houston does love to make love more than anybody I've ever seen or known. The last thing I'll leave you with from this interview is a quote from her in reference to her mom's failed attempts at getting her to go to rehab. She said, she gets in my door and she says, there's some people I want you to meet. And I said, mommy, mommy, you've raised me with love and with God. Now, if I can't make it with you and with love and with God, I'm not putting my my life in someone else's hands. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And nobody else, I don't care where they're from, what uh, council service they're from or wherever they're from. If you did this to me, I will go and leave this country. I will take Chrissy with me And we'll just go. And I'm very serious. And she said, everybody leave, please. Wait a minute because she's serious. And remember, we talked, um, we've talked a little bit. I think last week we talked about how Whitney, yeah, she would like threaten her mom. And, you know, if, if her mom ever like sort of overstepped her boundaries or, you know, when she did pull this rehab shit, Whitney would just disappear. Like her mom wasn't allowed in her home. Sometimes she would leave for, you know, months and not tell her mom where she was. Her mom wouldn't know if she was alive, which is super fucked up and super manipulative. And I know, like, like I said last week, I ride the Houston's asses. I will ride them till the fucking sun comes up because I think they're terrible. But her mom did make attempts for years to get her daughter into rehab. It's also important to note that Whitney had very recently overdosed twice Once while she was in Los Angeles, uh, she was found unresponsive after doing too much cocaine by herself. Apparently she had died and a doctor was able to revive her. And um, she also went into shock while she was doing drugs with Bobby in Denver and started convulsing. And her security guard had to cover her in ice and they took her to a hospital under a fake name. And in that interview, um, Whitney also said, I was scared when they told me that I had died. You know, I did. I changed my mind. I changed my mind. Yep. Because I didn't want to look like the rest of them. I didn't want to be like them. It frightened me. I don't ever want to be in that realm where I'm caught in a mold and I can't get out. Never. That's over. I'm beyond it. And the thing about the Diane Sawyer interview is that Whitney Houston was already on track to becoming the ultimate laughing stock." during a time when our reaction to seeing someone who we once, like, revered and and looked up to and and were inspired by so much, you know, is in a state of being completely near death. You know, that really didn't phase us back then. Like, we were, none of, as I've said, none of us had a frontal lobe in the early 2000s. But the Michael Jackson performance on top of this, with all of these sound bites and clips that were memeable, pre-meme, That truly sent her into... I mean, these clips and quotes are so memeable that they are fucking memes. Like, however many years later, this entire interview is a quotable meme. People know quotes from this interview without ever having seen the interview. There are young people who know quotes from this interview without ever having seen it. As I said earlier, it sent her into, like, a new stratosphere of being made fun of and ridiculed and mocked and just fucking bullied and if Whitney Houston thought she was a tabloid star before you know this I mean she had nothing on this version of herself my god the Diane Sawyer interview was the thing that I feel like ultimately led to like like this was the thing that turned Whitney into an SNL character and a mad tv character and you know, somebody that would appear on fucking Family Guy as a crackhead and, you know, just like the crack is whack lady to a lot of people. You didn't even have to be a fan of Whitney Houston's to go around in 2000-whatever saying crack is whack. Like, I would actually dare you to find me a person who was alive during this time, young or old, who wasn't saying, myself included, crack is whack every chance I fucking got. One of the women in Whitney's documentary who was super close to her, who I believe was like a cousin or somebody because um, Bobby Christina used to call her aunt, whatever. So I forget what she was to her. Um, But neither here nor there. She said that, you know, Whitney and Michael Jackson would call each other and sometimes they would just like cry to each other on the phone and vent. And she would fly to where Michael was staying in a, you know, whatever hotel he was in and just lay in his hotel room with him in complete silence because they both knew that they were probably two of the only people in the world who really understood each other in this very specific, unique, strange way. And, you know, I've said a million times, like, people people can't be famous the way Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston and, and Madonna and Prince were famous anymore. Like, it's not... It isn't possible to be that, to to be somebody who's introduced right now. Like Billie Eilish can release 40 albums and be famous for, you know, 20 more years, but she'll never be Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Madonna Prince famous. It's a different kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's just a different kind of thing. And I've said a million times that I think Beyonce is like the only, modern day artist who is even remotely similar. Like B- Beyonce is famous in that way. And she's very strategically famous in that way. And she works really hard at being famous in that way. Like it's not easy to be like a, a, mist, a mystic celebrity who has all of this mystery surrounding them. And and especially during a time when everybody shares everything, you know, she to work twice as hard at being, a celebrity with the same kind of mystery that celebrities used to be able to have back in the day. 2003 was also the year of the infamous Wendy Williams interview that we've been talking about now for several weeks. On January 30th of 2003, Whitney Houston called into the Wendy Williams radio show and let have, and this interview is, it's jarring to listen to in 2020 But you also have to remember, and I know that I've been promising a Wendy uh, episode for so long, but like, I'm also afraid of doing that too, because it's going to be 40 fucking episodes, but maybe that'll be the next couple that we do. The thing that you have to understand about Wendy Williams is that she used to be a shock jock. I think it's hard for many people to look at Wendy Williams like this cartoonish black woman and understand that for many, many years, she was on the same level as Howard Stern. Like, in the radio world, Wendy Williams is respected like a Howard Stern. She's in the Radio Hall of Fame. And, I mean, to be honest with you, I've always said that I think Wendy Williams is the black Howard Stern. I think she's the only comparable person. She's just a girl Howard Stern. The only difference is that she's a woman, she's black, and during the time that she was, like, known for radio, the people she covered were mostly urban or, like, in hip-hop, you know, and... This was her gig. Like, she, you called into a Wendy Williams and you white-knuckled it through an interview where you basically were attacked the entire time and made to look like a fool. You know, she just so happens to be on daytime television now and has completely rebranded herself, but, like, this is her, this is who Wendy Williams is. An interview like this was really just another day and, you know... The stuff that she said to Whitney is horrendous. It's really, really hard to listen to. It's really uncomfortable. Within the first 14 seconds of this interview, you realize immediately that Whitney Houston is taking no fucking prisoners. She called into this radio show to absolutely humiliate, embarrass, and talk circles around Wendy on her own show for 24 minutes. Like she just, she called to read her and that was it. It's one of the greatest moments in pop culture history. If you've never listened to it, I highly suggest you go on YouTube and listen to the full 24 minutes. You can't go through life having never heard this interview. And if you haven't heard it in a long time, I suggest you re reintroduce yourself. It's still to this day, the thing, even though Wendy Williams has, you know, a, a, a however many long decade career, she has a television show that's broken a bunch of records and, You know, I mean, Wendy Williams has accomplished a lot. This interview is still the thing that she's always going to be known for. It is like if you're a person of a particular age, it's like, yes, Wendy Williams has a, a talk show that's been on for 10 years and everybody knows her for that. But the thing that she's like the most iconic for, and there are so many things. Oh, my God. So many things involving Tupac and Diddy and just so many things. But the the Whitney interview is the thing. In March of 2004, Whitney entered a rehab and left five days later. And in May of the same year, Whitney and Bobby purchased a home in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, this house would sort of go on to symbolize the absolute darkest years of their lives. Um, Whitney actually left her New Jersey home as is. And she was like going to the Atlanta house to visit and just never came back. She never went home. She just, she never lived in New Jersey ever again. She left her house full of things. Like she left her house full of clothes. There was food in the fridge. She left it as is and never went back. And Atlanta is where I think Whitney and Bobby were at their absolute worst. This is where they were the most addicted to drugs that they had ever been. Bobby was the most abusive he had ever been. Bobby Christina was the most neglected she had ever been. And one of Whitney's relatives said uh, that, you know, Bobby was extremely abusive during this time, which we all know. Whitney has also said that herself. Um, She told Oprah in the last interview that she did before she died that Bobby spit in her face in this house. And that was, like, one of the moments that she realized, I need to fucking leave this man. But apparently the house was, like, dark. all, And also, by the way, she was promising her family members at this point that she was going to leave. This was, like, that period of the abusive relationship where she was promising everybody that it would end soon. Um, the house was dark all the time, completely pitch black. They never had lights on. Their curtains were always drawn. Um... Bobby would have these manic episodes where he would draw Illuminati eyes and devils all over their walls and all over their carpet with paint. Um, The house was full of garbage and like dirty, you know, cocaine plates and fucking heroin spoons and empty liquor bottles and beer cans. The infamous photo of Whitney's bathroom was actually taken in this house And Bobby Christina was left to just sort of fend for herself, as always. She was neglected. And that's the thing that I think is, like, really hard to come to terms with, is, like, Bobby Christina was neglected. As much as Whitney Houston loved her, and I know that I've, like, sang Whitney's praises as a mom, (sighs) Bobby Christina was neglected. Bobby Christina had nobody looking out for her. She was raising herself. Her... Companions were her parents, who were drug addicts. She was being raised by drug addicts, wealthy drug addicts, who also allowed her to partake in their drug use. So, Bobby Christina, her entire life basically was a drug addict. It's uh, it's really, it's really really sad, and I think that that's where I'm gonna end the episode this week. We made it to 50 minutes. That's not so bad. Um, We're going to be tying this up soon. I think next week I'm going to go into the divorce and then we're going to talk about, I think we're going to end the Whitney of it all next week. I think I may do one more episode just solely based around Bobby Christina. And yeah, I mean, Whitney Houston didn't work for so long. It was like six years or something that she didn't work. And that she was just sort of reclusive and didn't really do a whole lot. I mean, she acted, she did sparkle and all that stuff. But like, you know, there isn't a whole lot to talk about career-wise when it comes to Whitney Houston, but they do divorce. And that's interesting and a long time coming. So next week, I think we're going to kind of venture into the divorce of it all. I love you guys. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I'm going to go smoke that cigarette that I deserve now. And I love you and I'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McEady, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew.